Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, Pope Joan. This February 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. Just before I left, a couple of minutes before I left in the car to come here tonight, I was in the kitchen just to grab something out of the fridge. I put the folder down, this folder, and uh, my wife saw it and said, what's that? Like, what's the topic tonight? You know, Pope Joan. I mean, what's that? It's a woman's name. Pope, woman, doesn't seem to go together. And I'd like to do a survey here of us. Who has heard about this allegation of a Pope Joan in the church's history? Who's heard it? I don't know. Okay, at least, who's at least heard? Okay, so I presume the rest of us, if we can do an opposite side of the survey, put your hand up if you've never heard about this alleged Pope Joan before. And you've come tonight to learn about it. Good. That's great. All right. Well, I've actually encountered it, it on and off in the last 20 years. For most of the time, it's been a very dormant topic. I've never really had to stand up and defend the church or explain this. I first encountered it when I read my very first apologetics book, actually. I'll do a plug for this because you can buy it on um, Amazon.com. Just, just type in the question box by Father Conway and um, purchase a copy. You can get it for about $3.50. I've had a copy of mine for free. But um, <laughs> that was 20 years ago. There wasn't any internet. There wasn't any Amazon except a river in Brazil. And um, by that name, when I read that book, uh, just to give a bit of personal testimony here, there was the most outstanding Catholic book I'd ever read up until then. And because uh, the only other book I'd ever read was half of St. Augustine's Confessions. I was pretty slack up to that time. But when that, that book was just jam-packed of question-answer exchange, 417 pages of very, very, very solid answers to very hostile questions. And one of them related to the Pope Joan myth. Um, and Father Conway gave a very succinct answer, though I didn't refer to that answer in preparing this talk tonight. I do remember it was discussed then. And I've heard it on and off from time to time. Basically, once every four or five years, I hear someone who raises it, whether it be a, an evangelical or some Protestant or a Greek Orthodox or whatever. It is raised from time to time. Uh, so it will help to try and um, define what the allegation is, because there isn't one version of the story one version of the myth. There's more than one version. But of the various versions, there are common elements. So we'll, stand, we'll standardise the allegation and then we'll do a well, roundabout systematic rebuttal of it. And it's not very hard to do that. Um, let, before we actually start with a definition of the allegation, why do you think some people would raise this myth? What capital do they hope to gain from? I mean, the Catholic Church, let's, let's play devil's advocate here for a moment. The Catholic Church espouses itself as an institution going back 2,000 years, male patriarchal, male hierarchy, 
Pope, you can look at the back of any Catholic book like this one, and you find a list of the Popes going back 2,000 years. If you read the names, none of them are women. Right? So the Catholic Church makes very extraordinary claims. No other entity, no other church, no other body or organisation, at least in the Western world, can make makes this claim of a continued succession, a continued line of leaders going back 2,000 years. So someone who's got an axe to grind against the Catholic Church, and there are plenty of those people around, like to grind more than axes, like to grind chainsaws or whatever they can get their hands on. Well, anyway, plenty of people who really don't like the Catholic Church would, would like to think there's got to be some way of scuttling it, you know, that one, one shot in the dark that just shoot it down. And some people think that if they can adduce evidence of a male pope, this would dislocate... Di sorry, sorry, thanks very much. Plenty of evidence of male popes. <laughs> if they can adduce evidence of a female pope, this would sort of like break the back of Catholicism. Because break the back of the continued succession of, you know, uh, 2,000 years of popes, 265 popes, etc. Sort of like disconnect. Um, but I will argue by the end of this talk. Firstly, I'm going to rebut the idea that there was ever a female pope, but I'll also conclude with what a scenario, what would the case be? What is the effect on the church in any case if there was a woman who ever sat on the throne of Peter? What consequences does that, would that have on the church? Does it mean that all the popes since that woman sitting on the throne of Peter have been invalid, etc.? Anyway, does it mean it's an end to apostolic succession? Uh, does it mean that women can be priests? Because some would push this agenda of a female pope, well, for whatever it's worth, thinking that perhaps it could support their argument for women priests and uh, okay, women deacons and women priests and women bishops and women popes as a consequence. Why not? And that we should take, we should go back and look at the early church and recognise that the early church, Phoebe and all those women, they were deaconesses and there were women priests and there was women, there were women bishops and we've even had a woman pope. Why don't we have that anymore? Because the men came to dominate and repress. And it's all been that way for about a thousand years and we've got to rediscover the roots of the church, the authentic Christianity. Which made, which made no distinction between male and female, Gentile and Jew, Greek and etc., slave and non-slave. That's where we've got to go back to the pure church. See, there, were, there was a female pope in the past. That means we're going to have one in the future. I think that line of argument is probably the greater threat than the line that Luther picked up on and others since him which sees on a woman pope idea as something that might break the papacy, uh, or at least the papacy since that time. All right. Now, as I said, I apologise because I'm going to do a bit of reading, a bit more than I'd like, but uh, bear with me for that. In the Middle Ages, there was a Pope Joan, a woman who hid her gender and rose to the ranks of the church, became a cardinal and was elected pope. No one knew she was a woman, 
until during a papal procession through the streets of Rome, she went into labour and gave birth to a child. <laughs> now, this is, as I said, this is the standard. This is a standardised myth. I'm going to repeat this later on to give a few variants to it, a bit more depth. Of course, when this dramatic event occurred, the crowd became a raging mob, seized the woman, put her to death. She and the baby, in fact, were killed on the spot, enraged at this, impost at this imposture. All right. A lot of things are said about the alleged Pope Joan. Depending on who was telling the story, she was a courageous feminist, a clever opportunist, a brilliant scholar who couldn't make it as a woman in a man's world. She's said to have been a wise ruler and an astute theologian, though oddly, and this turns to our favour, this alleged theologian, this alleged bishop, this alleged cardinal, this alleged pope, the people who advocate the existence of this so-called Pope Joan can never point to any theological writing or decree as a bishop or anything done as a cardinal or any work or epistle or decree as a pope. There's nothing we have to substantiate in writing that there ever existed a woman of such a stature, with such stature. In any case, the fact is... There was no Pope Joan. She exists only as pure legend, but one that makes a juicy story. Now, why we need to be concerned about this furphy of a story is because we've just come out of the whole Da Vinci Code hoax and the consequences of that. Astounding, really, the the widespread popularity and material financial success of the whole book and movie, more so the book than the movie. Now, you can just imagine if someone would put, do some research, in inverted commas, and put together a whole volume, a whole book about the alleged Pope Joan and pass it off as another aspect of the hidden history of the Catholic Church. And they could make this book a bestseller, and then we get another great movie of it. I think, in my in my opinion, such a such a blockbuster would be uh, probably on par with, or maybe even more popular than Da Vinci Code. You know, I mean, if if it's a if it's put together as a scholarly work, probably hopefully better than the Da Vinci Code. But. Um, and it's sold to some company to make a movie, well, there you go, someone's going to make a lot of money, or a lot of people are going to make a lot of money. Well, that's half already happened, because New Line Cinema in the United States, that's right, the same people who produced the movie The Last Temptation of Christ, which was a hideous blasphemy that came out in 1988, um, Last Temptation of Christ was basically a rehearsal for Da Vinci Code in the sense that you know, it went around advocating that Christ was having an affair with uh, St. Mary Magdalene. All right. So uh, Dan Brown wasn't so original as he would want us to think. But New Line Cinema has already bought the movie rights to Pope Joan. 
because there was a best-selling novel, I don't know if anyone would have seen it, in 1996 by Donna Wolford Cross on the point, on the issue. So the book's already out there somewhere. That was like also with Da Vinci Code. Um, Holy Blood, Holy Grail was out there in 1982. Okay, I remember when it came out, I was first year at university, and I heard about it on the radio and I just thought, what a crackpot. You know, I mean, what a what a fudge that is, you know, Jesus having relationships with Mary Magdalene. Anyway, so but we had you had a, a precursor in Holy Blood, Holy Ground, then you get the Da Vinci Code. So maybe this Donna Wolford Cross's book, in a sense, maybe like a precursor to a real blockbuster that might come around at any time. Now Donna Wolfwick's cross, her book is couched as a historical novel. What a surprise, actually, like, like the Da Vinci Code. Embellishing on a grand scale the rather sparse details that have clung to the legend of a brilliant plain girl who rises to the highest levels in church service, culminating in her being elected Pope by an unsuspecting college of cardinals. The way the book is written and the way it's being promoted support the concern that it will be seen by most of its historically ignorant readers. Not as a novel, a fiction, but as a real biography of the one woman who made it to the top. If the movie ever comes out, this problem will certainly grow to huge proportions. And that, that's a fair enough comment. Because how many people out there really do know the church's history? I mean, history is a discipline in general. is is in real decline. When I was teaching in high school, it was something that was always being said here and there on the side. Um, when Bob Carr was Premier of New South Wales, he was someone who tried to lift the profile of history because he was big on history. But nevertheless, it continues to be in decline because young people think, oh, what, who cares? You know, what, who cares about what happened in the past? You know, what, that's not going to make me any money. You know, science, technology, all that, that's where the money is. So young people are going generally more in that direction. And history is a discipline that's slowly, slowly going by the wayside. Well, if that's the case for history in general, what, what can we say about history of the church? I mean, there's a gigantic gap out there in the knowledge of people about the church's history. And the salacious selves, conspiracy theory, theories they sell. You know, want to kick the Catholic Church in the gut because of its moral teachings, it will sell. Alright? If you, if you want to live your certain way of lifestyle, the church is always something annoying there, carping away about getting married, having kids, not using contraception, don't don't have abortions, no gay and lesbian marriage, and all that. You're not going to like this organisation carping into your ear all the time, so anything that can put the boot in is going to sell. It's a sad, sad thing. Write a book, Defend the Faith, make $250 in 10 years. Write a book, Defend the Faith, you make $250,000 a month. No problem. Okay. But in reality, the Pope Jones story is all sizzle and no steak. The basic outline of the main legend, actually there have been several versions, competing versions over the centuries, has it that in the 9th or 10th century, and they were very dark times in the church. If I just stop there for a moment. 
you can begin to understand why a myth would arise. The myth actually first appears around the 12th, 13th century. Gathers pace in the 13th century. That about 300, 350 years beforehand, there was a woman pope. And where is the legend allegedly based in? A period, 9th to 10th century, which was a horrendous period in the history of the papacy. Uh, we don't like to say such things as Catholics because naturally our tendency, and rightfully so, is that we want to believe that our prelates, whether it's the local parish priest, the local bishop, archbishop, cardinal, the pope, are being faithful, are setting the right example, being holy, to put it simply, teaching faith and morals correctly and being strong leaders. Well, that's what we want. That's what we crave for. And we don't like to hear bad things about the Pope. That's our natural instinct. But the, what the best histories about the papacy are written by Catholics. And it's Catholic sources that, tells us that, that tell us exactly how it was. I don't need to read non-Catholic, anti-Catholic, or any other source about the history of the church. If I want to find out all the muck, all the mud, all the atrocities, all the scandals, I only need to go to Catholic books because they're honest and they tell it as it was. And the 9th to 10th centuries, actually, the 10th century in particular, right until about the year 1047, to be precise, that, that 150-year period was a catastrophe for the papacy. Darker, in my estimate, than the Renaissance period for the popes. It's not a story about bad popes tonight. We've done that talk in the past. One of the worst popes was Benedict IX, who was pope three times, in the early 11th century, buying and selling and rebuying and bribing and in and out of the papacy as he went along. All right. So um, it was a period of great upheaval in the papacy, and only because of the the influence coming out of Cluny, the Benedictine monks, and the reform movement there, that we've began to get the purification at the very top, starting with Saint Leo the Ninth. In 1047 and and the popes right through to the beginning of the Crusades blessed urban the uh, second and in the middle of that was the great st. Gregory the seventh who was really as Cardinal Deacon Hildebrand was the mover and shaker behind this whole reform movement um, anyway so just to go back to our point here the myth actually plants itself in the 9th, 10th century, a brilliant young woman contrived to enter the university disguised as a man, because that was another aspect of male repression. You couldn't go to uni if you weren't male. Not that many men did anyway. And in the 10th century, what was out there by way of university? Really, university as we know it today, the great institutions were really products of a couple of hundred years later, 12th, 13th century more than the 9th, 10th century, okay? What percentage of men went to uni at that time either, you know?
wasn't as if anyone could go to uni just because you were male. Now, this woman's intellect outstripped her male classmates and she shot to the top rank of students. Sounds like our HSC results. Anyway, talk of her prowess in law, science, rhetoric, philosophy and languages was widespread. In another legend popularised by early, by several 13th century works, such as the Chronicle of Martin Polonus and the Universal Chronicle of Metz and the Wonders of the City of Rome, that's three separate works, this highly intelligent woman travelled first to Greece, lo and behold, with her boyfriend. Now, in brackets, why would he want a girlfriend who was disguised as a man anyway, walking around Greece? We don't know. But nevertheless, she made a name for herself in Greece as well, in the university there, then travelled back to Rome. I mean, I guess it, you can see, you can understand in a sense why they have to add the, the trip to Greece because it would uh, augment her qualities as a scholar, right? You know, if you know Greek and Latin and you, you know philosophy and theology, you've been to Greece and Rome, that would complete your education. Here all the legends confirm into the main one that has come down to our day. Once in Rome, Joan managed to enter religious life. Yes, she gave up her boyfriend, although no legend is able to say which order she entered. And it wouldn't have been hard in the 10th century because most of the religious houses at that time were still of the Benedictine model or variants. Most. You know, if the person was or the people behind this myth were really trying to substantiate it, it wouldn't have been too hard to add that little fact. I mean, the great variety came from the 12th century onwards with the different types of orders that emerged then, such as the Franciscans, Dominicans, Carmelites, etc. Anyway, we don't know what order she entered, but she entered one, was ordained a priest, and earned a high reputation as a notary in the papal court. The notary is like a legal official that officiates, signs off, authenticates documents, etc. Eventually, she was noticed by the Pope and made a cardinal. You can guess what happens next. Being a cardinal, she's obviously a candidate for the papacy and is elected Pope. Takes the name John, because it sounds like Joan, and sets about skillfully ruling the church. She's faultless, isn't she? And she's intelligent, good-looking, fools everybody, and when she, when she gets to the top, she's a brilliant leader. The men always get it wrong. They needed a woman to solve all the problems. It's at this time that the most dramatic scenes of the story unfold. The legends vary as to how Joan's gender and identity are discovered. One view is that she was granted a vision by God because God wasn't pleased with this masquerade, obviously, and she was given two options. She had to choose. Firstly, to be discovered and disgraced by the world or, choice two, continue with the fraud, die and roast in hell for her crime. Okay, so it's given one of two options. Be disgraced now, repent, end up being saved, or continue with the fast, die and go to hell. 
She, fortunately, chose the former to be discovered and disgraced. Another version says she got pregnant by one of her curial advisors and somehow was able to maintain the charade until she gave birth to the baby. At that point, her secret was discovered and she was deposed as Pope and sent to a convent to do penance for the rest of her life. This is one version. According to this legend, the child she bore went on to become a bishop of the city of Ostia, about 30 miles southwest of Rome. So this version says, okay, she's given a choice, be discovered, disgraced, repent, sent into exile, and the child lives on, becomes a bishop, no problem with that last bit. The other one, be the, continue with the fast, go to hell. She didn't choose that bit. Now, the bishop is, okay, the, the son becomes Bishop of Ostia, as I said, about 30 miles southwest of Rome. And when she died, her body was buried there at Ostia. Of course, no evidence exists to support this. We don't know the name of her son. We don't know the, his name as a bishop. We have no record of any such man being bishop. We have no evidence of her tomb, where she's buried, you know, no following or sim sympathetic crowd that would go on pilgrimage there. Anyway, the main detail these legends have in common is that Joan was discovered because her affair with the Cardinal Secretary resulted in pregnancy and the childbirth exposed her fraud. The main legend, though, differs from this one I've just related. It's the most gory. In it, Pope Joan goes into labour while riding in her Sadie Gestatoria, the portable throne in which the popes were carried until Paul VI. As her procession passed the Colosseum on its way from St. Peter's Basilica to St. John's Lateran Cathedral, the procession halted, the baby was born, the confused and angry onlookers killed Pope Joan and her baby on the spot. So the two rather the very divergent stories. They can't both be true. One dies as a baby, the other one becomes Bishop of Ostia. Most accounts say she was killed by stoning. Another says she died in childbirth, as the mob watching the spectacle shouted and insulted her. Still another says she was dragged to death behind a horse as punishment. Either way, the legends agree that the Romans did not appreciate the unpleasant discovery. All right. Now, this next point is interesting. And as I said, if anyone was to make a movie, they'd probably start on this point. Several odd historical details gave weight to the legend, including the fact that among the carved busts of the popes in the Cathedral of Siena, been there, but I can't remember these busts, was one of an unnamed woman. It's so Da Vinci code-ish, you know. you got this cathedral, Siena, very famous. St. Catherine, yes, of Siena. And you've got all these busts of popes, and somehow one of them is a woman. Maybe St. Catherine. Maybe, but I'd say probably not. It is a mystery. But it was a mystery that came... Now, this is where the book would get really interesting because no one knows who created this female bust 
how it was put there. But it was noticed by Pope Clement VIII, and he was Pope from 1592 to 1605. He discovered it. Now, he's the real criminal here. You know, if you're, you're writing this novel, this is where you really make it juicy. This is the Pope that covered up all the evidence and destroyed all the evidence for Pope Joan. But nevertheless, the true story lives on. He discovered it and ordered the bust to be reworked to represent Pope Zacharias, <laughs> whose image had not previously been included in the collection for some reason. Ah, so, here again, more repression by the male patriarchy. There was a female Pope, and it was acknowledged, and the bust was made of her, and it was put among the Popes, and what happened? Some fascist Pope later on comes along, chisels, chisels her out, and changes the face into a male. Another Pope. Another male Pope. Very juicy. That one point alone, which is factual, take away some of my comments, but that point alone, which is factual, female bust, discovered by Pope Clement VIII, had it recarved into a male Pope. That's factual. That's enough to really get this story kicked off if someone wanted to. But no one's saying that that female bust was the bust of a alleged Pope. We don't know. That aspect seems to be mysterious. This is not surprising. The commentary here is that this is not surprising that such a bust may have existed, given the widespread belief in Europe in the Pope Joan legend from the 13th to the 18th centuries. Versions abounded, as we've just narrated a number, and many credulous folks, including Catholics, were sincerely convinced that there had indeed been a female Pope. Who knows why? We're not at that time era, we, we, but perhaps it was so widespread, people just took it as a matter of fact. Yeah, there was a female pope once, you know, okay. It was an accident, it was a fraud, it was passed off successfully for a while, but then, then again, never got anywhere in the longer run. Anyway, but going to the hard, looking at hard facts again. History shows otherwise. The primary proofs that this is all just a fable are these. First, the earliest point that we can trace the legend to is the mid-13th century. But the legend didn't really gain wide currency until the late 14th century. So you're telling me, okay, looking at this chronology, say, market it around the year 1300 to keep it simple. Okay, between the 13th and the 14th century. You've got this alleged female pope, say around the 10th century, say 950, just for argument's sake. The legends don't really start spreading, becoming widespread, until 350 years later. There's no, not one historian in the intervening period, 350 years, who writes anything about this alleged Pope Joe? Not one. Not one, one chronicler from that period. No evidence of any kind exists from the 9th century 
nor do we see any in the 10th through 12th centuries. None of the annals or acts of the popes that were written between the 9th and 13th centuries, and none after that either mention her. There's one church historian, not so well known, but worth quoting, J.P. Kirsch, K-I-R-S-C-H, wrote the following. Not one contemporaneous historical source among the papal histories knows anything about her. Also, no mention is made of her until the middle of the 13th century. Now, is it, it is incredible that the, appearance of, that the appearance of a popess, if it were a historical fact, would be noticed by none of the numerous historians from the 10th of the 13th century. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia, 1913 version, says in the history of the popes, there's no place where this legendary figure will fit in. Between Leo IV and Benedict III, where Martinus Polonus places her, she cannot be inserted. It's impossible. There are gaps between popes, even numbering two and a half years that they weren't at this time in the history of the church. So, well, what could be the historical basis? To be strictly historical now, taking away the polemic and the mockery and the few jokes here on the side, where could this legend have possibly have originated from? From what historical series of events, persons or facts? There are two likely possibilities that, that give rise to this legend. This is not saying that the legend is historical. There are two historical events or persons from which this false legend could have been built on. The first is that the Roman population became disgusted with the corrupt influence wielded over Pope Sergius who reigned from 904 to 911, by the powerful and wealthy Theodorat Theophylact. Now, I'm going to go into this in some detail. And more specifically, by her younger daughter, Morosia, a cunning and exceptionally attractive woman. It appears that Morosia, and this has... This is not a myth, this is, has some historical basis. It appears that Morosia was Sergius's mistress. So that would be the first pope in recorded history who had a mistress. Sadly, not the last. And bore him at least one son, the future Pope John XI. Now let's go into this story of the domination by the house of Philophylact of the papacy in this period, the 9th, 10th century. Now, who was Theophylact in the first place? Well, he was a Roman senator, and he presided over the papal treasury and was commander-in-chief of the papal army. So he had a lot of money. Sorry, he had a lot of power and influence. Right? He's controlling the money and he's controlling the army for the papal states. To put it in perspective, historically, um, Popes at this time were not just spiritual, they were not just acting as spiritual head of the whole Catholic Church. They also had a 
dual role as king of the papal territories or the papal states as they would become to be known up until the 19th century. Uh, in other words, if you looked at a map of Italy at this time, right smack there in the middle and tending towards central northern Italy was this territory called the Papal States. It was a separate kingdom. It was a uh, particularly, I think, consolidated, as far as I'm aware, uh, substantially around the 8th century, around the time of Charlemagne, as far as I know, around eight, mid to late 8th century, and continued until uh, 1870-71 with the Italian Revolution under Garibaldi and the consolidation of the Italian states into one nation known today we call it Italy. All right. So the Pope was a king of a country, so he had to have finances and he had to deal with finances and he had to have an army. So he didn't, he couldn't control everything, so he had the delegate, and that was Theophilac, who was head of the treasury and the army. Now Theophilac, his wife was Theodora, and she, they, this couple had two children, Morosia and Theodora the Younger. This family, in effect, enslaved the papacy for 50 years. Now, I've already mentioned Pope Sergius III, 904-911. During his papacy, Theodora, that is the wife, reigned supreme, enriching herself. Sergius had Theodora's daughter, Morosia, as a mistress. As I said, they bore the a child who later would be actually Pope John XI. Uh, during the reign of Sergius, he actually had rival claimants to the papacy, Leo V and a fellow named Christopher, put to death, strangled, murdered. Perhaps some of the good things that um, Sergius did was that he condemned the errors of Photius, restored the Lateran and promoted monasticism. So good still comes out of an evil pontificate. But Sergius was no, was an unworthy man for the papacy. Just going on a tangent again, what does this mean? Pope, well, from our point of view as Catholics and faithful to the papacy, we know that Christ, he never... He promised certain things with respect to the church, but he never promised that St. Peter and his successors would be impeccable. That is, free from sin. Infallibility, as we know well, has got nothing to do with the personal holiness or life of the person sitting on the papal throne. Infallibility is a charism, is a protection afforded by the Holy Spirit to the office, to the papal office. When the Pope sitting in the chair of St. Peter, acting as Pope, that is, head of the whole church, the universal church, is determining a matter relating to faith and morals, binding the whole church once and for all. So you could certainly get a Pope who would declare infallibility, that is, issue an extraordinary act of papal infallibility relating to a matter of morals, say, let's, let's just hypothesise, saying that Sex outside of marriage is intrinsically evil. But giving, giving that, pronouncing that extraordinary act of papal infallibility doesn't protect the Pope from such a vice himself. He, he could, in theory, 
God forbid, but in theory, be indulging in that vice himself. Christ said the gates of hell will not prevail. He didn't say they'll be unemployed. Right? He said that that means that they'll be very busy, and they'll be very busy from outside, attacking us from the outside, and also cooking from the inside. Okay, the gates of hell are working very hard from outside and inside. And that's very important for us to know as Catholics, because you're going to come across people who always want to have a look at the Catholic Church and look at the less than 10% of popes who have black marks next to their name. And the Catholic Church is full of corruption. As we said at the beginning, the horror of Babylon and all that, you see it in the lives of the popes, but sadly these people tend not to see the 90% plus whose lives were very holy and faithful to varying degrees, right up to sainthood. And we should never run away from it. We should never, when people make accusations or attacks, just pretend it didn't happen or to deny it when historically it existed. It happened. You read it where? In the best Catholic history books. You must explain that nevertheless, yes, Sergius was a true Pope, but sadly he did not live up to his office. He did not correspond with the grace and the calling that Christ himself raised him to. Why? Because we have free will. And that we call freely and we must correspond, we must answer freely. And we're free to answer, well, not at all, or poorly. And this is a fact in history. It doesn't mean there was a break in the papacy. It doesn't mean that the papacy itself is bad. You just had a bad incumbent. No one goes around today saying, whatever you might think, for example, let's take an example, whatever you might think of George W. Bush, and I'm sure there are various degrees of opinion here. No one, none of you would say at the same time that the office of the United States president is an illegitimate office. You wouldn't. Same with the prime, John Howard as Prime Minister of Australia. If you don't like his politics or his economics, fair enough. But at the same time, you wouldn't be saying that the office of Prime Minister is an illegitimate office. You get judges sitting on various benches, court benches throughout the world. Some of them are shonky, corrupt. Most are not. Some might cry when giving a decision like today, if you saw the news. right? But the, that, 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 that judicial position is a legitimate position of authority. Same with the papacy. Anyway, what happens next, okay? Theophylact family dominates Sergius, John the Tenth. 914 to 928. He was originally a puppet of Theodora and her daughter Morosia, but took hold of himself, got courage, sure God was helping him and he corresponded, took command of himself and the papal armies to expel the Saracens from Italy. He became too independent for the Theophylact family. Theodora had him a set assassinated first, he's the Pope's brother, then imprisoned John the Tenth, 
and had him strangled in 928. Then we had John the 11th, 931 to 935. Now remember, John the 11th was the son of Pope Sergius and his mistress Morosia. Son of Morosia by her first marriage. Oh, liaison, sorry, with Sergius. Morosia, after that illicit liaison with Pope Sergius, got married a couple of times. She got married a third time, in fact, and that caused a revolt of her second son, Alberic the Younger. So let's get this picture before we lose track of it. Morosia, the daughter of Theodora, marries a third time and has a son. So, marries a third time, and one of her children, Alberic, rises up in revolt. Alberic imprisoned John the Eleventh and his mother Morosia, and his mother Morosia dies in prison. Pope John the Eleventh is never heard of again. Alberic reigns as dictator for 22 years. By the end of that 22-year period, the stranglehold of Theophylax is over. So some surmise that it was in this period of corruption and Pope John XI that the Pope Joan Mid rises up. Another viewpoint is that probably the Pope Joan myth lies in the conduct of another Pope John previous, Pope John VIII, a much maligned figure from the 9th century, 872 to 882. He appears to have had a very weak personality and was perhaps somewhat effeminate. Effeminate Pope John VIII gets close to female Pope Joan. Cardinal Baronius, in his church history annals, suggests that John VIII's reputation as effeminate gave rise to the legend of Pope Joan. Indeed, it would seem that over time, the common folk added ever more lurid embellishments until the vulgar jokes about the hapless and certainly male Pope John VIII ballooned and metamorphosed into a female Popessa. All right, we're close to finishing. So, just to sum up that point before I give a, a point so far before we conclude. There is a legend out there of Pope Joan. There are various legends. They have variants. They have a core element that's common among them. We could easily establish that all the legends have no historical foundation whatsoever from a critical point of view. We could, though, surmise that the legend, which is a pure myth, there's a difference between legend and myth, by the way, Myth is just something completely false. A legend is not something completely false. You hear about the legends of the saints. From legend is derived the root word legio in Latin. Read, readable, worth reading. St. Augustine hears the voice of the little angel, or the angel, there's no little angel. <laughs> hears the voice of the angel saying, Tolly legio, Tolly legio. Pick up and read. 
legends are stories that are worth reading. That doesn't mean they're a myth. The legends of the saints are stories about the saints that are based in fact, maybe embellished somewhat, nevertheless, but worth reading. Okay, so we distinguish between legend and myth here. So just to continue on, the Pope Joan myth might have some remote origins in 8th, 9th, 10th century church history where there were troubled times, weak and corrupt papacy, overruled by a corrupt family, and there may have been a effeminate, well there was an effeminate Pope John VIII who could have been the remote basis or foundation for what grew to be later a salacious myth. Anyway, now let's just discuss briefly, before we finish, what if we were to concede, just hypothetically, that there was a Pope Joan, just pretending, and she reigned for whatever length of time, but that's not important. Say this whole myth is true. She disguises herself as a male, goes to uni, gets top grades, becomes goes to a religious house, becomes a monk, becomes ordained as a priest, rises up the ranks, gets noticed, becomes a cardinal, fools everyone, gets elected, is pope, and reigns, say, three years as Pope. Say we concede all that, it's to be true. What would that do to the church? What would that do to the papacy? Would it destroy the church? Would it break the succession that we that we read about when we look at the lists of the popes? Does it mean that all popes since Joan have lost legitimacy? Does it mean that the papacy ended with Joan, does it mean that it, the seat is vacant and could be never filled because we've had a disconnect? No, because we have to understand that, firstly, we're not dealing with something here strictly called apostolic succession. Popes aren't made popes by an act of ordination. The current Pope does not nominate and ordain, so to speak, an inverted Thomas, his successor. It never has ever happened. And even if a Pope was to nominate, when that Pope dies, the Cardinals are completely at liberty to ignore utterly the anointed successor, or the anointed one, made anointed by the previous Pope. Popes, the Pope, position of Pope, position of Bishop of Rome, is an elected office. It always has been throughout history. The procedures have obviously changed. But one core element of the procedure is that it's the priests of Rome that elect the Pope, elect their bishop. The Bishop of Rome, and I'm not going to go into defence about the office of the papacy and its universal jurisdiction, for the moment we'll take that as a given. It's a given. The the clergy, the Roman clergy, elected their bishop. That's still the case today. You're probably thinking, why does he say that? It's the cardinals who do that. But being a cardinal makes you a priest of Rome. Okay, That's the purpose of it. You get a red hat. It's not a 
office. It's not a, an ordained office. It's an appointed office. You're chosen. You're given a red hat and you're given a titular church in Rome where when you're in Rome as cardinal, you say your masses at that particular church. You're attached to that particular church and you're made a priest of Rome as a consequence. And so using the example of our cardinal, Archbishop Pell is made a cardinal. So he's George Cardinal Pell, Archbishop of Sydney. Yes, he remains Archbishop of Sydney, but he's also a priest of Rome now, by virtue of being made a cardinal. And he has a titular church, I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but when he goes to Rome, he celebrates Mass there, and he even preaches in Italian. His Italian's not that bad, actually. Pretty good. Um, so, if, if Joan is made Pope, she's not consecrated as Pope in the sense of an ordained office. Okay? She was elected to be Pope by the other priests of Rome. But of course, the Pope must be a bishop. The Pope is Bishop of Rome. And by virtue of being Bishop of Rome, is Pope that is head of the Universal Church. So, conceding all this, what happens if the Jones story is true? Then all we have in reality is an illegitimate usurper. You don't have the office destroyed. You have someone who has been illegitimately appointed to that office and holds the office fraudulently. And so it was never Pope at all. Even though there might have been an imposter who sat there, a usurper who sat there, right? they were never legitimate. She was never legitimate. So she could, should never have... Even if she sat there, she could never be included on the official list of popes by virtue of the fact that, she, simply, to put it simply, because Joan was female, she couldn't be a legitimate candidate for orders. She couldn't be holy order. She couldn't be a legitimate bishop. And by that fact alone, could never be elected as Bishop of Rome. It just means that there was a gap in the succession of legitimate bishops of Rome. And there's always been, we always get gaps between one bishop to the next, one pope to the next. And what was the, this, the between John Paul II and Benedict XVI, just off the top of my head, well, we had no pope for what? Three weeks, say. But the procedures there in place, and the, the cardinals are faithful to the directives of the previous pope, to put in the legitimate successor. And any Pope Joan would have violated the conditions for a legitimate successor. successor. So it would never have been a legitimate Pope. And doesn't break the papacy, because the papacy is not dependent on the previous Pope being legitimate to pass on that office. Right? It's, it's, it's the power to make one Pope resides in the priests of Rome who elect a legitimate bishop and could be elected from anywhere. All right. Well, I think we finished there. Hopefully that covers it. It wasn't a very in-depth topic tonight, but I think we at least covered the basics. So thank you for your time. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture 
by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.